This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the Best of Fight Back from the week that was. The second wave of COVID-19 here in Ontario continues to take the largest toll in long-term care. But there is good news. The process of vaccinating residents seems to be underway, however, slowly. Meantime, the calls for action to prevent further COVID-related deaths in long-term care are escalating. The first of these calls was made by the Zoomers advocacy group CARP, demanding Premier Doug Ford fire his long-term care minister, Marilee Fullerton, for failing to protect residents in the second wave of COVID-19. The Toronto Star then launched one of their own, and recently members of a group called Save Our Seniors have been holding regular demonstrations outside hard-hit nursing homes. Last Sunday, both the federal Green Party leader and NDP leader appeared outside the St. George Care Home in Midtown Toronto, which has a record number of cases and where the University Health Network has taken over management. On Monday, Libby was joined by the Zoomer squad to talk about the latest in long-term care, which includes escalating case numbers and related deaths, while the vaccine rollout slowly continues. Here are Peter Mugrich, senior editor of Zoomer magazine, Bill Van Gorder, interim chief policy officer at CARP, A New Vision of Aging, and David Kravitz, chief marketing officer at CARP and vice president here at Zoomer Media. They clearly can't be uh, held responsible for the magnitude of the, the infections or the spread in spite of all the social distancing, in spite of all the policies. I think it's fair to say that we've reached the point where the overall performance is really starting to fall apart here if it hasn't fallen apart already. Bill. Originally, when we talked about the uh, vaccines, we were pleased to see that the provincial government said they were going to follow the uh, nasty guidelines. And very clearly, they said that the first vaccine should go to, and I quote, those living or working in residential care uh, care homes. And second was those who are at greater risk of severe illness living in their own homes. Now they've completely backed away from that recommendation that at the time everybody said was the right thing uh, to be done. And they're moving slowly in doing it. So uh, our members at CARP are frustrated. Peter. Tender care is, is like in the midst of an outbreak. It has, you know, it's being run by a hospital. You know, it, it's it's in the worst possible situation, and yet they vaccinated everyone there. Why can't they roll it out to the other uh, nursing homes? I, I, I don't understand. I, I'm asking a question. Like, I just, I don't, I don't see what the holdup is. I, I've been following all these, um, you know, Save Our Seniors uh, protests and, Buried in them, not so much buried in them, actually right on the surface is, is this big push to end uh, the for-profit uh, nursing home industry. So that's going to that's gonna heat up, it's going to percolate, and this pandemic could put an end to for-profit uh, nursing homes. I'll believe it when I see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of but people say... But the heat say, is on though, right? Bill? 
Well, with the current fire we're fighting, we just hope that the government realizes they've got to fight this on two fronts. They still have to make sure that we protect our people in long-term care homes, and the vaccines are not going to be the the final end of it. In fact, uh, their emphasis is almost like chasing the horses when we should have clo- uh, closed the barn the barn door. And unless they focus on both vaccines and controls within long-term care homes, we're not going to see this uh, end as quickly as we need it to. David? It comes down to what is it reasonable to expect from the government and what is it fair to say, hey, they can't be held accountable for every single thing. They certainly can't be held accountable for the nature of the disease and the severity of the disease. And even with all the lockdowns, I would submit they can't be entirely accountable for the for the spread because that's you know up to a lot of people. But the management of the long-term care homes where over 60% of the deaths are still occurring and the distribution of vaccines into those homes is very much within what we have the right to expect. They're still falling short. We're still getting signatures, many signatures at carp.ca to fire the minister. And it, I predict, and I agree with Peter, I think we're on, on the same page, that this is rapidly morphing into uh an election issue before we know it. David Kravitz, Chief Marketing Officer at CARP and Vice President at Zoomer Media, Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine, and Bill Van Gorder, Interim Chief Policy Officer at CARP, A New Vision of Aging, our Monday Zoomer Squad. This is the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. This year, most snowbirds decided to cancel their annual trips to Florida and elsewhere. In fact, travel insurers say they are seeing a fraction of the usual numbers, 30% or less. But that may be changing since we learned Florida will vaccinate anyone over 65 regardless of nationality or home ownership. We've all seen clips of people who already received their shots in Florida, though at this point it's difficult to get an online appointment. There are other issues around travel. The governing liberals in Ottawa have been clear we should not be leaving the country. And recently, they introduced a requirement for a negative COVID test to re-enter Canada, which airline executives have complained about. At the same time, we learned Air Canada has been hiring social media influencers to entice people to take holidays. Libby spoke about international travel during the pandemic with Dr. Kenneth Wong, professor of marketing at Queen's University's Smith School of Business. John Graddick, a faculty lecturer at McGill University in Montreal and a former executive with Air Canada. And Martin Firestone, president of Travel Secure. In the last couple of weeks, they have basically called up and booked insurance, proper insurance, including COVID protection, for the sole purpose of heading down to get the vaccine, staying the three weeks for the second shot and out of there after that. John, you're a former executive at Air Canada. Uh, what did you think when you heard that they're actually trying to convince people to travel while the government says don't do it? Well, I think that, you know, Air Canada is a commercial organization. It's there to make money. And uh, if you're flying airplanes, you'd like to get those airplanes as filled as you possibly can. So, yeah, it's in, you know, it's incumbent on, you know, the return to the shareholders and to, uh, 
you know, the other bondholders of Air Canada that uh, Air Canada try to maximize its revenue. And yes, you're you're right. They're flying in the face of all of the recommendations that we're hearing, both from the federal as well as the provincial governments. You know, they want a bailout from the government. So to start with, the government says uh, you're not getting money unless you refund people for their trips that were canceled because of COVID. So the airlines are not, or Air Canada is not doing that because can't afford it. And uh, Kenneth Wong, now they're, you know, now now they're they're sending out messages that's totally contrary to what the government wants its citizens to do. Yeah. Well, I, I think the issue here goes uh, quite a bit beyond just the appropriateness of their advertising. Uh, it really speaks, I think, to the, the lack of a, a, an integrated government policy here. Airlines have to stay in business. And, and frankly, as a country, given the, uh, the, the vast distances we have in our small population, we need airlines as a country and we need them strategically. So we have to keep them in place. Now, government is not uh, being very forthcoming with what kind of assistance they're going to offer to airlines. And as a consequence, the airlines have to do what they have to do to survive. And in this instance, that means running contrary to government policy. It should never happen. Martin, do you have a view of that? Yeah, I'd like to actually say something. Going back to months before the paying of the influencers, they were incentivizing travel by offering free COVID-19 travel insurance at 100,000 cap for Air Canada vacations and 200,000 for regular Air Canada. That to me is, is absolutely bizarre and irresponsible. People were telling me, I think I'll go this year with Air Canada. I'm getting free travel insurance with them. Anything but the truth with that. And the cap of 200,000 for COVID is just sheer irresponsible. You could be in the hospital there on a ventilator for half a million dollars. And then who's going to pay the difference at that point? Martin Firestone, what would you like to leave us with? Well, I think I'm not concerned about flying on an airplane. I'm not concerned about catching it at the airport level. My biggest problem still and will be access to the hospital once you're down there. So, in fact, you have the normal things that can go wrong, breaking a hip, heart attack, stroke. I worry terribly about anybody getting into a hospital and not being turned away. That's the biggest problem we all face. John Craddock? I think the you know the industry, the travel, the travel industry, the airlines, and the government have got to start talking out of the same sides of their mouths. I think, you know, this conflict and this this debate and this dialogue and these talking through each other isn't conducive to getting people to trust to fly again. And I think it's got to stop. Okay. And Dr. Kenneth Wong. Uh, I think, first of all, everybody should be free to choose, choose whether to fly or not. I think that decision requires that they have good information. I don't think they have good information from the government right now on uh, the risks and and where they uh, are vulnerable. And I think Air Canada, rather than trying to encourage travel, should be encouraging safe travel by talking about what they're doing and what passengers can do in order to prevent the spread of the pandemic. Dr. Kenneth Wong, professor of marketing at Queen's University's Smith School of Business. John Graddock, a faculty lecturer at McGill University in Montreal and a former Air Canada executive. And Martin Firestone, president of Travel Secure. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau readies his cabinet for a possible spring election. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. 
good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zuma Radio. Welcome back. Tuesday was a big day for political announcements. Provincially, Premier Doug Ford announced a state of emergency for Ontario, along with a stay-at-home order, which went into effect on Thursday, with hopes of reducing dangerously high COVID-19 cases. And federally, Navdeep Baines stepped down as Innovation Minister after deciding he won't be running in the next federal election, a decision that prompted Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to shuffle some of his cabinet members. To discuss the changes, Libby Snymer was joined by our Tuesday strategy panel. Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village. John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road. And new panelist, Charles Souza, former Liberal Ontario Finance Minister and former MPP for Mississauga South. I'm interested to know the underlying reason. He's a young man of 43. He's been in politics for some time on and off. He's a young guy and he's a lot of energy. So I'm not sure what his real plans are going forward. I mean, certainly family is important. We all have that. But you go into this game with your eyes wide open and he recognizes and his family recognizes the implications of that decision. It may be that he has another another opportunity now uh, before him. And I think he wants to pursue, you know, another other direction, and that's fine. In regards to the replacements, I think they're all good. I mean, Francois Philippe uh, uh, will uh, be uh, important in his role, and uh, Marc Arnault, I think, with his stature, and he's a bit older, he certainly seems more composed and steady. He'll be essential in terms of diplomatic relations with the U.S. and China, which are very sensitive right now. And Omar, Omar's been in the Peel region as a young man. Um, he's fought and he's worked really hard. He's a steady force as well, and, and he'll bring some value to, to the cabinet. Speaking, uh, John Capobianco, of the changes, my impression was that uh, François-Philippe Champagne was well thought of, but this looks like a demotion, doesn't it? Well, it is a demotion. There's, there's very few portfolios that are more important than foreign affairs, uh, and innovation certainly isn't one of them. Um, although, you know, innovation and, and economic development is, is an important one. You know, cabinet ministers, uh, do have other issues. And, and uh, in the case of Bill Marneau, when he re- resigned, you know, we all knew why he resigned. And, and, uh, you know, you, so you try to spin as much as you can the reason. But nonetheless, uh, shuffles happen, uh, in a minority government. I think the prime minister obviously is, is getting ready for, for what could very well be an election this year. Uh, minority governments don't last more than 18 months normally, so it really is about the time for for that. And and some you know some politicians and leaders obviously will ask and canvass their caucus to see if anybody is not running because if if they're not running, then they want to give a cabinet spot to somebody who is uh, and give them some profile. So it's not unusual from that perspective. But but it was an unusual one in that given given Nav, Nav's uh, desi- desire to resign and then putting uh, uh, Minister Champagne there from foreign affairs, I thought that was a demotion and something that, that might have been percolating within the party uh, that, that we, don't, we just don't know, because I thought he was doing a, a decent job as well, uh, getting out there and talking to various foreign governments and, and whatnot, but, but also not to take it away from Mark Garneau, who is, is you know, obviously quite talented and, and somebody who is obviously well-respected, but also maybe it is to put to change the focus in the U.S. with the new administration. Uh, with, yeah. with uh, President Biden, uh, soon to be president of the next week, it could be a chance for, for the government, for the liberal government, to change their focus and their face 
on how they deal with the U.S., given the change there. Yeah, though, uh, Karen, I I was uh, going to speculate about that, but you would think that there would be a change in focus with a really major turn in the administration, though I guess uh, some of the trade officials, uh, are they going to stay or go? Yeah, honestly, I I don't even know that I could say. I mean, there's no question China is emerging as a a serious threat uh, to Western democracies and, and the sense of world order. And, you know, we've been experiencing that with, the Michaels being held captive for, um, what, two years? And, you know, we don't have a decision on Huawei yet. We've got, uh, you know, a political hot potato still percolating uh, with the fact that there's this extradition hearing. So there, it's, it's a big file. And, you know, I, I guess credit uh, maybe to uh, the Minister Champagne who kept the lid on it, but it's percolating. And I, I think that there is a sense, and, 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 you know, COVID is kind of overtaking everything, but there is a worry about China and the emergence of China and the way China does its diplomacy and how that's going to impact um, mid, mid-powers like Canada and Australia. And, um, you know, we have to figure that piece out. And, and maybe there is just a sense that um, it, it is, it's going to become a bigger issue than maybe we even understand it and someone else needed to be leading that. Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, John Capobianco, Senior VP and Senior Partner at Fleischmann Hillard High Road, and former Liberal Ontario Finance Minister Charles Souza, Fightback's Tuesday strategy panel. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fightback. I'm Jane Brown. New shocking COVID-19 modeling numbers for Ontario were unveiled on Tuesday with dire warnings that Ontario's health system will be overwhelmed and deaths related to COVID-19 will exceed those in the first wave unless there is a significant reduction in contacts between people who live in the province. The data projects that under the current COVID-19 restrictions, daily related deaths from the virus will double from 50 to 100 by the end of February. Projections show there will be about 500 COVID-19 patients in intensive care in Ontario this month and potentially more than 1,000 by February in more severe scenarios. Experts compiling projections for the government say the growth of COVID-19 is accelerating in Ontario, growing at 7% on the worst days. And 40% of the province's nursing homes are now experiencing outbreaks of the virus. Deaths continue to spike in long-term care. Since January 1st, more than 200 residents and two staff have died after contracting the virus. To discuss the numbers, Dr. Timothy Sly, epidemiologist and professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University, and Dr. Dion Alleman, an industrial engineering professor at the University of Toronto and an expert in contact tracing and pandemic planning. The projections that include um, the spread of this much more transmissible version of COVID really are quite surprising. But other than that, everything is, I mean, the numbers are shocking, but the writing for these numbers has been on the wall since October, at least. So ultimately not very surprising. Dr. Sly? 
Yes, it's not where we wanted to be, Libby, at all. Uh, we've been uh, discussing this and how it's been getting worse. Uh, we hope by now we would see a sort of a, a leveling off and maybe a, a de- declination of those numbers down to zero, but it's nowhere near that, I'm afraid. Melbourne did it so well in their second wave. They had a disastrous second wave, and they were able to bring it down. They did it by severe restraint, and uh, that they used to um, lock down in, in all Man, manner of speaking, not not a mild version like we were really considering, and they did it. Uh, China did it after eighty two thousand cases, brought it down to zero. But where seem to going the other direction, Doctor Sly? What's the doubling rate, and why why is that important? Our brains aren't really designed to think in exponential functions, and this is what the doubling time is all about. It's that 1, 2, 4, 8, 16, 32 progression, uh, and it's, it's vital when we look at planning for how rapidly something's gone to the community. Uh, all of the all of the plans are quickly upset when something the doubling time becomes a little less than it was you know the previous period before and it it rapidly topples uh, even the best laid uh, precautions for hospitals and uh, and any other facilities so yes it's a, it's a it's a vital thing it's a part of the component for how rapidly something moves to the community calculating the r factor as, as well uh, it it comes into all those effects it's it's a vital component for all kinds of planning doctor Alamon, what are some of the terrible decisions that doctors might be faced with? Well, <clears throat> there are limited ICU beds. The doctors might have to look at patients who arrive at the hospital and decide who gets the bed, who gets that care, and who doesn't. Right? They might have to make decisions about who is more likely to survive whatever it is you're you're in the in the ICU for. And that's again, that's not necessarily COVID. It might be, say, a heart attack, um, and it's just uh, horribly unfair to expect our doctors to have to make these sorts of decisions. Like that's not what their job is, right? Their job is to try to save everybody. And it's the job of the province and the federal government to make sure that they have the resources to provide the care that everybody needs. And, you know, this is somewhere where um, here in Ontario, the province has really just let us down. You know, we, we had that 150 ICU bed usage as a threshold indicator of us being in like a major red flag zone. And we surpassed that number uh, over a month ago. And even as we were coming up to that number, you know, the Ford government really just dragged its feet about implementing any serious measures to get things under control, even though we know exponential spread, you know, it doubles and then it doubles and then it doubles. As we just talked about, like, it doesn't just like wind itself down. It doesn't just go away. You can't just ask people nicely to have fewer contacts. It takes strong, bold measures to quickly get things under control. And that wasn't done. And now here we are in a situation that could have really devastating consequences for a lot of people. Uh, we have to support people. It's all very well for us to say uh, lockdown, uh, curfew, whatever it is, but we have to support people very much in terms of sick days, for example, not being afraid to stay away from work if they feel ill. Absolutely essential. Dr. Timothy Sly, epidemiologist and professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University, and Dr. Dion Alleman, an industrial engineering professor at the University of Toronto and an expert in pandemic planning and contact tracing. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. 
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Dennis in Brampton, who phoned about the need for paid sick days, especially during the pandemic, and reminding us of Premier Ford's philosophy on legislated paid time off due to sickness. I'm very confused, as many people are. Um, The whole messaging around these changes, if there are any, is still very confusing. But specifically with respect to the sick days, I would point out uh, that the uh, Wynn government had proposed, were bringing in changes to the Employment Standards Act, which included two paid sick days for all employees. And among the things that Doug Ford did when he came to power, in addition to to, uh, cutting the uh, proposed minimum wage to $15, is he also eliminated the two paid sick days. He's ideologically opposed to providing that benefit. And with respect to the federal government, I understand that the Ford government is still sitting on a pile of cash that the the federal government has flowed to them to deal with the pandemic. And he's he's demonstrated whether it's long-term care, education, he is not wanting to spend any money. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby and have your say anytime on our Fightback voicemail at 416-367-9636. 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of The Best of Fight Back. The Best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.